It's part two of Who Are Chino y Chicano? Welcome all. I'm Matt Chan, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. All right. I am in the batter's box now, Matt, and you're up on the mound, so I'm ready. Fire away. <laughs> well, okay, you and I have known each other for nearly 45 years, right? Yeah, long, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the very beginnings of our careers, so. Right, very much so. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I know some stuff about you, but I don't know things about you. So let's start from the <laughs> beginning. So you are from Wapato, Washington. That's where you grew yeah. up. Where That's is where Wapato up. and what was it like? <laughs> okay, so Wapato is about oh, 15 minutes, maybe less than that, outside of Yakima in central Washington. And... I was born in Yakima at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which no longer exists, but um, my sister Sally and I were born there. Sally, my sister, is five years older than me. Uh, I'm the youngest. There were, my, my parents had six kids. Um, I had two older brothers, two older sisters. We lost a, a sister in Mexico. I believe it was an influenza outbreak, and she died when she was about year, a year old. Her name was uh, Rosa Avelia, and she was kind of in the middle of the pack. So, so my older siblings were born in Mexico, then Sally and I were born here in the States in Yakima. And then Wapato was a small farming community. My grandfather had actually... Uh, when he left Mexico, he had to flee because he was a landowner. There was a revolution. It's a big story. And then he was in Wyoming. And then eventually I had some uncles that had written him a letter about, hey, there's a good ground in the Yakima Valley because they've been on the migrant stream. And so he ended up moving the family there, settled in Toppenish. My parents came in 1946. We eventually settled in Wapto. My dad farmed. Wapto is a small community of about 5,000. It was just kind of this little town. All the businesses were owned by white people, but it's kind of smack in the Yakima Indian Reservation. So it was kind of interesting because you had the... Yakima Indian Reservation, Yakima Nation. You had Mexicans that lived there that were part of the agriculture uh, scene and, you know, picking the crops and all of that. And then a Filipino and Japanese um, community as well. So it was mixed, but uh, people mixing together was kind of so-so because it was also a very conservative mm. Republican area. And... Um, there was also, I found out some information about back in the 20s, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was very active in, in the Yakima Valley, and they tried to chase out the Japanese and the Filipinos. And so it was a, it's, it's an agricultural area, and it's very conservative, very conservative. So your parents were married in Mexico, so That's they right. didn't yeah. kind of find each other once they got here. No, no. Um, my dad had, uh, as I mentioned, my grandfather had been a landowner in Mexico. So there was a revolution. And in 1918, he had to flee. And my dad was about five years old at that time. Um, and eventually, my grandfather sent for the others after he established himself in the States. Um, but <laughs> my dad got in a little bit of trouble when he was a younger man in, in Wyoming. Uh, he got in a shootout with some guy. Um, it was very wild west. And so my grandfather said, uh, well, the sheriff came and basically said, you know, uh, 
you got to do something. My dad's nickname was Huero because he was light-skinned, and that's a, a term in Spanish. And uh, so the sheriff came to my grandfather and said, you know, Huero is going to get in trouble here because this feud continues with this guy, and so you better do something about it. So my grandfather then sent him back to Mexico where he had some property there and uh, set him up to farm to get him away from all this. And eventually he went back there. It was in northern Mexico, and then he met my mother who was a school teacher, and then eventually they got married and uh, lived there for a while. There was a drought where he was farming, and then, you know, he decided to come to the States because we had family here. So that's how they ended up coming here. Yeah. So you you grew up on a farm and you worked yeah. on a farm. Yeah. We were and the labor so force for our family, you know. <laughs> that I think that's kind of why they had kids. Well, the fact they were Catholic as well and Mexican and all that, you had a lot of kids. But, uh, you know, we were the labor force for my dad as a farm. My dad farmed when he came. That's That's what their background was. And he eventually worked with my grandfather, then went out on his own and so we all farmed, you know, dad farmed sugar beets back in the day when they did sugar beets in the valley. He did corn, field corn, sweet corn, wheat. Um, he did produce from tomatoes to cucumbers to peppers to cantaloupe to watermelon. And and we were, everybody went out and worked, you know, because that was the way it was. So, but, and then you're kind of growing up in Wapato. You had a pretty normal sort of rural upbringing but you know there were some racial overtones as always because there were a lot of different groups there so what was that like you know when you first were aware of sort of the racial animus that yeah. exists you know i always knew that there was something because um we when i was in kindergarten we moved to this one place and the road was called lateral one it was about five miles outside of wapato and on that road it was interesting because there were um, orchards and the orchards were all run by um, the this uh, Bulgarian uh, families. And so there were the Demoffs, Evanoffs, Nikolovs, and then Demoff. <laughs> then there was us, this one Mexican family. Then there across the way, this canal bank, there was a German family. Then there was another Mexican family. Then there were uh, Yakima Indian families. And so everybody sort of knew each other. And uh, so if we needed, you know, pears or apples or whatever, we just went to the Demos and picked what we wanted. They would come over and get produce from us. And then the Hop Tuts who lived up the road, they would bring Columbia River salmon and smelt. Everybody traded. So it was just like a little salad bowl that was there. But you always knew that there were differences and and I always knew because I was dark skinned and people would always say, you know, they, they'd call me Negro or I got called the N word a lot. If I could have, you know, a dollar for every time I got called the N word uh, and, you know, and I'm talking the bad N word, uh, I'd be a very wealthy person. But I always knew it was there. We always, it was there. But what I really knew was I was about, I was in second grade and one of my brothers had a girlfriend and she came, she came to live with us for a while. But what I, when I really realized it was that her mother called our house one time and she asked to speak to my parents because I answered the phone. I was just a little guy. So I handed it to my dad. Well, anyway, so her mother called and asked my, told my dad that she didn't want uh, my brother going out with her dating her anymore, her, her daughter. 
And then the daughter eventually, you know, my dad basically told her to go to hell, that he could date whoever he wanted to date. And then um, her, she, the girlfriend, came to our home crying and because uh, she, you know, was uh, just upset because her mother did that. And then eventually she moved in with us for a while, you know, and she was her senior year in high school. Huh. Um, but it was basically because my brother was Mexican, she was white. So you knew what the deal was. And, and I always thought, yeah, okay, this is yeah. not going to happen to me. Well, uh, it did, <laughs> you know, it did. And then the same thing. So you knew that there were, you knew that there were big differences and you knew that, that, uh, and particularly as I got into you know, junior high and high school, it almost got to be a joke in a way that guys, well, yeah, did you date, did you date so-and-so or weren't you dating so-and-so? Oh, no, yeah, her parents don't want me dating her because I'm Filipino or Mexican or Indian or whatever. So it was there. Yeah. We just, it's the, it was there, uh, just strong and you knew, you knew it and you had to deal with it. So. Did you, did you speak Spanish at home? Spanglish. Uh, Spanglish. Yeah. Cause my mom and dad both spoke Spanish my mother especially, she'd been a school teacher in Mexico, so she spoke very good Spanish and wrote, you know, very well. Always was encouraging us to kind of keep the language. My sisters did really well. My brothers, not so much, and me, I, although I'd have to say I'm better than them. Um, and I understand really well. And when I go to speak, I have to really think about it because I, yeah. I kind of like I grasping for words and um I don't feel like I'm comfortably, you know, being real fluent or opposing or saying that I'm fluent. I kind of average. So I I think about it. And then if I have to do something in Spanish, I really have to cram to be able to do it well. Uh, that's something that I'm, I'm not happy about. You know, I feel actually kind of embarrassed that I didn't keep it. But, you know, it was kind of a, the assimilation thing. You know, yeah. on one hand, I was uh, we were very Mexican at home, but also American. And then at school, you know, I grew up with teachers telling you don't speak Spanish. They would say it's OK to speak Spanish during the migrant times when, when I was in grade school and the kids would come in and they'd assign me to the kid that couldn't speak Spanish or couldn't speak English to help him go to the bathroom, do whatever, whatever during the short time they would be there. And then after that it was no, don't speak any Spanish. We don't want you doing that. So, hmm. yeah. So. So when did you decide that you were going to college and, uh, and, and how did you pick WSU yeah. of all places? Uh, it was a girlfriend I had when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, actually, she was the one that convinced me to go to college and, and, you know, suggested I go to college. And a good part of it had to do with she was white, I wasn't. And we had kind of, we dated and under the radar, you know, because her parents didn't want her with me because I was a Mexican. And um, so about our, when our senior year came around, or actually ended the junior year, started talking about that. We kind of talked about it a little bit. But then our senior year, you know, she's the one that says, well, you know, you should really think about going to college. Actually, I, not only her, but I had a counselor and his name um Gosh, he was he was uh, from a, a, an Indian tribe in Idaho, and he big tall guy, Larry Porter. That's what his name. And he came to me one day in my junior year, and then carried over my senior senior year. And he said, "You know what? You can go to college. You really need to think about this." 
And he kind of kept on me. And then I talked to him about, you know, what that meant. Because I really hadn't thought about it that much because I was, you know, young, dumb kid. And <laughs> Well, how many people in your family went to college? Um, my brothers both went to YVC, the Yakima Valley Community College, briefly. You know, they went for just mm -hmm. like maybe a quarter semester. Nothing really serious. Of course, you know, they were in the generation that where college was, it was not, wasn't affordable, but also it wasn't like it, you had to have it for whatever you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Then they both went to work at a paper mill in Port Townsend where my sister and her husband had settled and it was a good paying job. So they went there and that's eventually where they settled. I eventually worked at that paper mill when I was in college one summer. Um, but knew I did not want to do that. And, uh, I also knew that I didn't want to continue to work on the farm. I mean, I, that when you do that kind of work, it's, it's a great motivator for yeah. trying to add something else. So, but, so why broadcasting? I had always had an interest, uh, from the time that I was a little kid, you know how you talked about that you'd like to tinker with to machines and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I would hear these voices. We, we would wake up in the morning. My dad would always get up, got off early, make this Mexican chocolate and toast and stuff. And we had this big radio console. And every morning, you know, he'd wake us up and I would hear the CBS News World Morning Roundup with Dallas Towns. And I'd hear all these voices. And I got just enamored with that. And I thought, man, that sounds like it's kind of be a cool career. When I was an eight, year, eight years old, I got a transistor radio that I could get stations from around the country, particularly in the summer, uh, out in the boonies, you know, where we lived, you had this kind of open sky and I'd hear all these disc jockeys. So I just got interested in it. And then I also had an interest in current events. For some reason, those things I liked reading the paper, I'd, I'd, you know, kind of knew what was happening in the world and I was always interested. But I was always, a, I never wanted to tell anybody that was my interest because I was embarrassed, you know, because that's like, not what we do, <laughs> supposedly, mm -hmm. at that time. And and I was a very average student and things like that. And um, there was always kind of a confidence thing that I struggled with. So anyway, I uh, what, what happened was I, that was always in my mind. And I wasn't really, I mean, I knew who Edward R. Murrow was, but I didn't really know that much of his legacy at WSU. And then when I went to school there, I ended up finding out about it. But when I made the decision to go to school to WSU, it was really so that I could be with this girl. <laughs> and my first semester there was just hell. I mean, I had a trouble adjusting to school. The relationship was not going well. I got in a car accident. I had uh, bronchitis and pneumonia. It's like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I had a 0.93 at midterm. And, <laughs> and man, I was like, just so embarrassed. I was embarrassed to tell my family. And I did. And, and I just, I, I didn't want to let them down. I, I managed to pull it out. And I got a 2.07 at that semester, because the last three weeks when we went back for finals, I just, I finally got well, and I was able to kind of just focus. And then after that, I never got below like a 3.4, because I was just, I think I, I I did it all because of fear. I didn't want to ever mm -hmm. feel that again. But I finally got into a communications class because I got locked out my first semester and I got yeah. into the communications 101. As soon as I got into that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Kind of didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that's what I wanted to try to do. So I, 
I just focused on that. Yeah, that that was one of the big focuses and uh, just that's what I wanted to be. And I, I so decided first, I wanted to be a reporter. So first job out of the out of this graduation, what was your first job? My first job was at Como Radio in Seattle as a news reporter. I was, How'd you get the job? Well, my WSU connection helped me. There was a guy um, that he was a station manager at, at KWSU Radio. His name was Bert Harrison, and I was like on the staff there. And Bert was this kind of crotchety old guy that smoked cigarettes a mile a minute and cursed a mile a minute, and but he was a very flowery writer and all this stuff. Anyway, he came to me one day and he said, and for some reason he liked me. So he came to me one day and said, you know, there's a job opening in Com- at Como Radio in Seattle. And the general manager was a former, was a WSU grad and he knew him. And he said, here, check it out. And uh, and then he sort of helped me. And so I put together a tape, sent a resume. Bert came to me again and said, you know, uh, I think they're, they're going to want to talk to you. So why don't you give him a call? So I did. He gave me the number of the, of the general manager I called. And so they said, well, can you come to Seattle? We'd like to talk to you. And sure. And I figured, well, you know, you know, a couple of weeks or something like that. And they said, can you be here Friday? And this was like a, this was like a, a, a Wednesday or something like that. So I said, sure. So hopped in the car and I had a 65 uh, Impala that, you know, I had for a long time. And uh, a couple of buddies came with me and we drove to Seattle and I interviewed and the end of the interview, we interviewed for about three hours, went with Brian Johnson, who was the news director there. Uh, and so it was a reporter's job. Yeah, it was a reporter. You would report and also anchor newscasts and came back after all this conversation and they offered me the job. And I was nice. like floored. Yeah. And it, so, in my first six months, they were really hard because I was a newbie. I was, you know, 21. Everybody oh, there out of school, was, you don't know shit. You didn't know shit. <laughs> and people there were, you know, they'd been in the business 30 years, 20, 30 years. I was just, you know, just this newbie. The, and the program director was on my case. He wanted me to sound a certain way. And I used to get so stressed out, I'd lose my voice, you know, in radio. That was bad. So, so how uh, many yeah. people of color? I mean, it was pretty white back then, right? Zero. I was, Zero. The, I was the only one. Um, I had actually, they were trying to diversify. So they had uh, a woman that, her name was Barbara Stenson, who was uh, uh, a reporter there. You know, they were just trying to also even have women on the air. Mm. And so they they brought me in. They'd had here and there some uh, African-Americans that were, you know, as reporters and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, I was I was it. And in the TV newsroom, there were maybe a couple uh, of, of there were a couple, see, two African-American reporters, no women at the time that I remember. But Connie Thompson, actually, who we've interviewed on, on our podcast, was she was just starting out. So she was a production assistant. And uh, so we kind of came in about the same time. And so I saw her, you know, grow up the, and move up the ranks. But yeah, so that was back in the day when, you know, so how very, long very did few you do that? How long were you in radio? Two, and when did you make the leap to TV? Two and a half years. I was there at Como for two and a half years. 
Then I got a call from someone that we know, a guy named Dick Wierzynski, who was actually at WSU and was a mentor to me at WSU. One of the few people who actually talked to me in the <laughs> communication department was was very, you know, um, helpful and caring and, and all of that. So I got to, you know, always have felt very uh, kind of indebted to Dick because he helped me out a lot. Um, and... He called me one day. He was working as a director at King TV and said, there's a job opening here. You should really look at it. So I, you know, I did. And and then not wholeheartedly because I was fairly comfortable being at Como Radio. And then he called me again. Actually, his 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 wife called me the next day and said, the program director, a guy named Bob Guy, you know him, uh, know. and he was an unusual fellow. Um, he he wants to talk to you, so I they said, "Can you meet him five o'clock at the Dart?" And the Dart was this kind of really yeah, it was a dive, dive bar. tavern. Dive bar is giving yeah, it credit. Yeah, 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 and it was on. It was on. Um, uh, gosh, what is that? Terry, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Terry Avenue. And right below there. And so we actually went to the bar and the guy that they wanted to replace, who was actually a, a Mexican-American fellow named Tony Rodriguez, who had a drinking problem. And he was in there getting drunk. And so Bob Guy met me outside of the place and said, uh, you know Tony Rodriguez? And I go, yeah, I know who he is. And he goes, well, he's in there and he's getting drunk. And so we need to go to a different place. So we went to the Terry Avenue freight house. He told me that he wanted to replace him. He offered me the job immediately. And mm-hmm. um, then we kind of talked a little bit about money. And So what was the job? Job was to be a producer. Uh, they had a, a public affairs show that they were doing and – my job would be to come in and to replace Tony doing that public affairs show. Uh, I also told him I wanted to be on the air. And so he said, that's fine. You can host the show and um, then be a part of the public affairs and the production department. And I was a bar, a part of both of those, although I was situated more in production and started producing a, a show called Another Point of View, which was a talk show kind of focusing on issues of, you know, communities of color. Uh, so at that although time, it could be a little more that. At that time, King, w- you got to give him credit. They were pretty diverse, both on the air, yeah, but more yeah. importantly, behind the scenes. They did have much more diversity than than Como did. Como actually, well, of course, even now, but it was a very conservative place. Mm-hmm. I think everybody looked at that time as Cairo being very the conservative place because of it was owned by Bonneville, which was a Mormon-owned uh, broadcast operation. But to be honest, Como was far more conservative in their ways. Yeah, and I mean, it was let's like, face it, it was a white yeah, guy. Yeah operation it it was very much so and king was too but there was a different take on it no it was Uh, sort of the benevolent white yes there you go yeah Yeah, it was sort of yeah the benign well they they knew what they had to do right right you know and they did it um and and to their credit they did it they didn't do it kicking and dragging i mean they just knew it was the right thing to do they were good broadcasters yeah, they, they were, and they were very, very community-minded, and that had to do with Mrs. Bullitt and the sisters and, and all of that, and, and uh, you know, it was a, it was a 
totally diff- different atmosphere. Yeah. At, at Como was just very kind of uh, rigid and just uh, it was kind of stale to me in a way. But when you go to King and things were loose, and I'm talking loose, you know, because <laughs> people were like they just everything was much different there, and and it, it was I definitely fit there. Yeah. Far more than I did at Como. So it, okay. It was, so how long were you there before I came up? I'd only been there about a year. Okay. Yeah, when you came on, and uh, and then I had met you before briefly. Yeah. You know when you had applied for that so, job. So at I was only there for eleven months, and then I went right. to San Francisco. But you yeah. continued on. I mean, that's sort of where yeah. our careers diverged. Right. But yeah. we stayed in touch all those years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I came and saw you in San Francisco. You came to my wedding when I eventually got married and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because, um, you know, the racial animus that I felt was was there. Um, I was in bigger markets, so it was much more diverse. But um, the thing that was interesting, my whole stock and trade was ideas. So my ideas and my skill was worth money directly as a product. Whereas yours, yeah. you're a reporter. So you're an employee working in environments. And you were there during a lot of the growth when they started diversifying everything. Yeah. Um, how did that diversity track with your career? Where did you go and what was it like at each of the stops? Because you had a number of, you've worked at all the TV stations with the exception of Cairo, right? Yeah. I worked at uh, Como, King, and KCTS. And, um, you know, King was, uh, I I really enjoyed working at King. I did kind of hit what I felt was a bit of a wall. I, you know, looking back on it, I think I was a little too anxious about wanting to, I was, I think you all, all of us want to like hit some level or beyond, you know, where we're going up the ladder. And, mm-hmm. and I, I got into that. So you got to have and, goals, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely had goals. And, and, um, you know, King changed it. My first few years there, I were just tremendous because I got to do a lot of different things. I got to, uh, host their morning show. I, I did documentaries. I, you know, we we did a, a lot of unique stuff. I mean, they really were invested in doing things in the community at that time. So, and I learned a lot from people that eventually went on to do bigger things. And it was an interesting group and an interesting time. So, but then, you know, the company, the, the operation, the company, it evolved. Remember the fact that there were only three stations at one time yeah, in exactly. Seattle and there was a lot of money and, and people could do lots of different things. Particularly to produce stuff, but gradually that started to change with with the economy hitting different points. So where did you uh, go next? Things not being so good. Uh, I went from King to Como. I had been, and actually it was Dick Rosinski again, who they were looking, I think, to again add some diversity to their newsroom. But you went to their newsroom. Yeah, I went to their newsroom, and that was a big change because I had been working in more long form. Uh, type of work. And uh, although I had done some news stuff at, at, at King, it was not on a daily basis. So I basically went from doing 
feature type of reporting to the grind of doing daily news. And that was a big adjustment. I initially didn't adjust well. And that kind of found my, my, my footing. I went through some changes there. The business was changing. You know, King was changing because it, it then also got bought by a different company. Uh, they, as they were doing all of that, when they, when they sold King, they got rid of a lot of the, uh, you know, I, I did a show called Celebrate the Differences with Lori. It was a, a uh, half hour current affairs show, well, public affairs show that focused on diversity. We did it for nine years, but they got rid of all those types of things so they could sell the company. So you knew things were changing. And then when I went to to uh, Como, obviously I was working daily news and that's a whole different animal. And it took a while for me to feel comfortable there. And and then I then I got another, uh, I decided to leave. What was your time at Como like? I mean, you know, they weren't very diverse at that time. I mean, did you have any issues? I had some issues with some of the lieutenants there, you know, below the, the news director. I would rather have someone be blatantly racist with me so I know where I stand than someone or people that handle things so it's like under the radar where they make your life kind of miserable by giving you bad assignments or putting you in in you know working weekends and uh or ignoring you that's the other thing they they did so i went through that period at como and finally decided that i can't do this and i wasn't there that long when this happened i'm probably only about four or five months. And I finally just, I just, I, the stress of it all, I was, was just more than I could bear. And I walked in and quit one day. And, and it all had to do with the fact that I felt like I, I, I just felt like a failure. I was having trouble with my confidence. I didn't feel like, you know, the, I, I got along with a lot of the, the reporters and staff, but I, the people that were in the management positions, particularly the daily lieutenants, it was not working. And I, I, but I, so I eventually had this exit meeting and, uh, and I was asked, did you feel that it was, that you're being, um, that there's racism going on here? And I told the person, uh, their human resources person, I said, you know, that's a real tough question to answer because for several reasons, number one, I haven't had anybody come up and call me a spick or the N-word or whatever. <laughs> but there's this kind of subtle thing that can happen where you get ignored. And uh, anybody and, of color gets it. They know what that is. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. 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 But you know, it wasn't blatant, but it was yeah. that no, it this, never this is. thing, this thing underneath where you're getting slowly, you know, screwed over. And well, so said, how many Latinos were on the air at that time? So there was just me. Oh, there was another that came in, uh, a woman that came from Texas. And she she was there, I think worked there for maybe two years or so. Then eventually, I think went back to Texas. In the whole market, there was only two. Oh, no. At the time, I'm talking to Como. Okay. Um, I, at Latinos at the time... See a king. There was a Carlos Del Valle. Well, I think Roberto Romero was over there then. Um, I don't remember any at Cairo right now, or at, you know, thirteen was having. They were doing news. I can't remember any over there. 
at Como, there was me, and then there was a, a woman named Rebecca Rodriguez. Um, okay, so but, the, yeah. there, were, there were some people. So, so okay, so you quit. Yeah, so you I, quit. So I walked in and I basically said, I'm going to quit. And then uh, what ended up happening was that uh, kind of the shit hit the fan and people got called out after I did this, you know, went in and did this exit interview because they'd asked me about some people there that they'd had some issues with, I guess, before. And so some of those people that I had issues with before then came to me afterwards, you know, saying, don't go, you know, so did you go? Uh, Ended up. They came back to me and offered me a part-time up job saying, you know, how about you work like uh, weekends and, you know, one other day during the week. So I think I ended up working Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, I, I, I ended up with working part-time, but I kept it. Uh, partly because I didn't have any other plans. And well, I had plus little you had kids. a family. I had a family. Had family. I had little kids and a family. And, you know, that freaked out my then wife, which I don't blame her. But um, I was also kind of uh, injured at that time in the sense that I my my confidence was just at a low point. And, and I, you know, have battled depression. And so, it, you know, I'm sure I was struggling with that as well at the same time. And... But I was struggling. I was really, but but one of the things that happened was that when I made that decision about I was going to leave, my work changed. I suddenly, the, I, I think I took a weight off myself and I my work got better. I just, you know, things got better because I, I finally was just saying, okay, I'm not really beholden to these folks. I can go do something else. And eventually I started doing freelance work and my, I, my confidence built back up because I kind of thought, well, I'm not that bad at this. I'm not that <laughs> stupid. And the other thing that, that really helped was that in the newsroom, some things changed because those folks that were making my life a bit of a living hell, they got called out. Mm-hmm. And um, so that so, was so how a good long thing. did you how long did you stay there then? I was uh I was there in about another two years. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah. So, so I this, and then, so yeah. this is a question that has always baffled me. I mean, you know, you're very talented and, and you you were a great reporter. Why did you stay in Seattle? I mean, you could have gone anywhere in the country. Um, you know, being a Latino on the air, yeah. that was worth something at the time. You know, I, um, part of it was I I had tried a couple of times to go elsewhere and actually had, uh, uh, ABC news uh, contacted me and I was interested in doing it, but then, uh, I was married. I had a, my daughter was like two and, um, uh, my wife at the time, you know, she was excited for me when I told her about the opportunity, but the idea of moving away was, you know, we would have had to relocate to either Los Angeles or Miami. And remember how you talked about when you had a job opportunity in New York Mm -hmm. and you couldn't do it because you didn't want to put Althea out because she was in her, well, my daughter was little, my wife was, you know, her family was here and I knew it was not going to be as much as I kind of wanted to do it. And I don't want to put it off on her because it really, uh, you know, so I just thought, okay, this isn't going to work for the family. And yeah. so I decided I got to, 
you know, no, that, you know, that she's not going to be happy and we want to, this is where her family is and things like that. So I said, no, not, not going to go for it. So I decided I just, you know, and frankly, I, I think I'm lucky that I got to stay in Seattle the whole time yeah. because yeah. I did build a certain reputation and, um, yeah, uh, and I didn't have to move around the country like a so, lot of people okay. do. So you, for, so after that, after your part-time gig at Como, you went back to King, right? To um, Evening Magazine? No, no. At at the part-time thing at Como, Como, I did that for another two years or so. And then actually also, they had a show called Rainbow Express. And I, and Josephine Chang and I started doing that together. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then it, it 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 evolved to another show called True Colors uh, that uh, Vivian uh, Phillips and I did for oh boy we did it for like four years, and then an opportunity came open at at KCTS and a fellow that I know uh, that worked there a guy named Dave Davis at the time he called me and said hey there's a position open here you should come and look at this. Uh, you'd fit in well here. So I did. It was a senior producer job opening. And at the time, it was only a one-year position because it had to do with one of those. They It was kind of a um, sort of a diversity thing. Yeah, and, a grant-based Right, position. yeah, yeah. So I, I decided to take it. I decided to take it partly because I was working freelance. I was working at Como on the weekends. I was working constantly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I was getting kind of burned out. But I also was having to pay Cobra, all this stuff. And so I thought, well, you know, I could go there and have kind of a more stable life. And so I, I applied, got that job there, and then started really initially doing documentaries and other stuff. And then, uh, yeah, so I went there and then, uh, you know, it, it started to evolve in what I was doing. And next thing I know, 23 years later, you know, I was there and uh, did all sorts of things from producing documentaries. I hosted a weekly current so, affairs okay, show. So when did you that. do Evening Magazine? Because oh, that's when we reconnected again. Right. I did Evening Magazine before I left King. I oh, did, okay, Yeah, okay. I was their first reporter. So when they started it up, I think in 86... And I was, uh, yeah, I, I was started it in the beginning, and then left there in '93 is when I left King. Yeah, yeah, because that's actually, when we yeah. reconnected again. Right, we reconnected. I was, yeah, because I was running the national show right. in San Francisco, and we used to do. They were connected. What used to be a part of the old PM magazine, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we'd produce stories that you guys would hear on your national reel, and yeah, actually, we did a lot together because I, I remember. Uh, getting to go to San Francisco and do some other shoots elsewhere in the country for you guys yeah, and all yeah. that. That was fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. So, yeah. okay. So then you had your run at KCTS and then, you know, you retired from there because yeah. Yeah. you'd reached the end of the run. Right. So throughout your career, what was the shittiest thing that ever happened to you being in the business oh. that was just like, just kind of summed up the low point of just being a person of color in the business? Boy. I don't know. There's, there's several. Well, there's a lot of them, right? Yeah. There were, there were, uh, you know, several that just, um, you know, they often dealt with kind of personality clashes or 
what really would happen was people that just didn't understand um, the your difficulties. Um, actually, this is something that happened that it I was a part of it, but I wasn't the one that they were mm-hmm. focused on. But I remember this because uh, it really bothered me. Uh, because it told me a lot of what I was up against. So when I was a king, there was a particular program director who came in and he, you know, uh, kind of created chaos, kind of good and bad. Um, and he had his own issues, but we were doing a show. It was, it was actually what came before celebrate the differences. It was a show called third world. And the fellow that was producing that, that started, that came up with the idea and, and asked me to be a part of it as the host, he, uh, he was an African-American fellow and he had, he had some challenges and he was actually a really talented guy. He just had trouble with his kind of containing his own emotions and, and just, you know, fitting within a white world. That's really mm-hmm. what it was. But he also, uh, at one point, he had a nervous breakdown. And so when they this happened, the, the then program director brought us all in and uh, he said, well, yes, so so-and-so is, he, he's, he's gone to the nut farm. He's crazy. And just kind of <laughs> went on about this stuff. And I thought, yeah. nice. whoa, what, what are you saying? I mean, you know, the guy's a human being. What are you doing? You're, you're basically tainting him so much. And, and so this, this particular program director, it was interesting because, um, I, I actually, I've, I've never, was never fired, but I'm sure I came very close. And he was one of the guys where I'm sure I came really close with getting fired just because I didn't fit into his world. But what ended up happening was, is that with that show, when he was going to nuke it all and then, um, it was guys from the community, uh, Bob Santos, Larry Gossett, um, Roberto Maestas, and Bernie White Bear, the four amigos that came to the station and said, you need to continue doing this show. And well, first of all, they, they contacted me and pulled me aside and said, you know, we're going to come in and raise hell. So then I was sort of, I don't know that I was actually assigned, but I took over what was what we were going to do there this particular program director he had no idea what was he was going to face with those guys so uh i came up with a plan to to revamp the show and to do it and we went into a meeting with him and his lieutenant and the four amigos and i knew what they were going to do they were going to like totally get all over him yeah, they're going to rip up. Yeah, totally. And and they were ready to bring marchers and all of this stuff. And so, um, you know, he was freaked out. He didn't, you know, because suddenly he'd never dealt with anything like this. Yeah. You know? And he used to say things like, well, the minorities want this. I mean, you know, it was that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Well, and, that, that, yeah. that period of time of broadcasting was yeah. sort of peak broadcasting, right? Yeah. Stations were rolling in money. 
They had money to do stuff. And there is this pervasive kind of white guy, tough, oh, yeah. gangster-like mentality. Yeah. Like, you know, they were doing genteel work, let's face it. Yeah. You know, you're not farming, right? Yeah. And so these guys had to kind of posture like tough guys, and it was stupid. Right, right. So there was that. So anyway, I ended up, I, I laid out this plan that I had actually developed with the gang of four. And, and so afterwards he ends up, you know, because I saved his ass, then I became like his, his guy. And, <laughs> and it was like, Oh, you know, and um, he was there for a couple of more years, but, and there were still more instances like that. But I see that there were more than one particular incident you know, things like that, mm -hmm. that, that I had to deal with through the years. And they were all kind of at the same level of just aggravation and things that, you know, you had to deal with in order to get by in order to kind of, to just to deal with the system and, and things yeah. like that. So well, it's like you and I said, I mean, it's a, it's a career of a million cuts. Yes, exactly. And so that's why it's hard to pick one particular thing because there were really so many and so many times along the way that I, I, you know, that it, it just was tiring that, yeah. that, you know, you're, you feel like you're trying to dodge bullets in a way. Well, you know, like all people of color in this business, you end up being a survivor. I mean, yeah. that's really what yeah, it that's is. That's what it's it survival. was. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And, you know, you made it to the finish line when you retired right, after right. over 20 years at Channel 9. Yeah, and yeah. Over that time, you built a career of being a revered sort of senior journalist statesman yeah, in the market. that did happen, yeah. And yeah. Um, so looking back, since you retired, was there would there be anything you'd do differently? Oh, God, yes. Lots of things differently. <laughs> totally differently. Um, uh, I think I... I've always thought that there are times when I could have been more aggressive about things. You know, uh, I think there were times when I, <laughs> I can't wish I'd have been more like you, just this kind of unfiltered <laughs> sort of in your face thing, but it's not my personality. Um, I think there are times when I wish I would just have been more aggressive about things and uh, that I had, maybe stuck up for myself or others a bit more uh, that I maybe had taken a chance more about going mm -hmm. someone else, somewhere else just to try it and to see what that would be like. Uh, but in the end, I, I think that I've been pretty lucky because I, w I was able to stay in this town and build a reputation and build a career uh, you know, a lot of people, they aspired just to be able to come to Seattle. I, I was able to, to start here and to stay here, uh, and, and also be able to be a part of the community beyond just the business, you know, mm -hmm. what I did, because I, I tried to be active in the community doing things. Um, and I'd like to think that I, I did some things along the way. And actually the thing that, that, you know, now I'm at a point in my life where, I'm on the Board of Regents of WSU. And, uh, you know, considering where I was at a 0.93 <laughs> my first semester <laughs> to being there, um, I, I realized that uh, what, what I've been able to do has given me that opportunity. So now I'm in a different place. 
And I really want to make the most out of that and be um, someone that helps those underserved and particularly in my community have an opportunity to go to college and hopefully go to go to WSU if they want to go there. Not Oregon, not the U. You know? <laughs> hey, come on. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm in this different position and uh, it's that being able to give back. So that part of it, yeah, it's kind of a neat thing. And, you know, you we were talking in the first episode, you were talking about your, your kids and things like that. You know, I'm, my my son went to WSU and, and uh, my daughter. Antonio. Yeah, Antonio and Alicia, my daughter, is about ready to have her, you know, first grandchild. Uh, and so I'm really... Uh, I, I'm happy for my kids because it's kind of like what you said. They're both, you know, they, they're a good acquaintance in their lives where they're healthy and they're, they are <laughs> employed and doing okay. And, and so that's an important thing too. And and I come from a huge Mexican-American family and, and that's uh, something that, that is very meaningful to me, you know, to be a part of all of that. So, yeah, you know. You know. One thing that people don't understand about your side of the business is – it's really hard to stick up for yourself. Oh, it is. Because unlike like me, you know, I walk in with a show idea and it's either good or it sucks, right? And, you know, if it's good, they make money. For you, you walk in and they're judging you. Right. They're judging you as a human being. So when you ask for a raise, if you ask for a promotion, you're there and they're looking at you and they're going to tell you to your face, well, you're not good enough. You suck. You're good. Yeah. You're bad. Yeah. And people don't understand how devastating that is because when your job is based on your performance, how you look, how you sound, man, talk about shaming, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's brutal. And that's the part of the business that people don't realize. You know, that's really true. The other part of that is that, you know, Seattle is a white city and, oh, yeah. uh, and then you work for people that are in management positions that are white. Uh, and in, unless they have some sensibility or, or whatever, and most of them didn't that, you know, some <laughs> of them did, but not a lot of them didn't. Um, they have their own idea of what it, the person that should be out in front of the camera and, and all of that. And to be honest with you, Every time I tried to be to go for a mainstream position, which, you know, I don't think I ever got because I didn't fit the bill of what they saw of someone that would be white that would fit that position. And, mm -hmm. and I knew it. I knew that I was going for something that, you know, I'm not going to get this, but if I don't try, I'll never know. So I'd, I'd try anyway. But I knew I was up against that. So frankly, all of those minority affairs shows that I did, they gave me that opportunity because the people that, you know, that were giving the time for those things, you know, they were doing it because they kind of had to at the mm -hmm. time uh, or for goodwill or whatever. For me, that ended up being that was my opportunity. And then I built on that opportunity to get my foot into the door to get into the boardroom. You know what? Because if I hadn't had that, I would never have gotten on the air. I would never have had the opportunity to grow as a reporter and a host and all those things. That's where I honed my skills. So 
as much as I used to get aggravated that they looked down on those shows, and I, even at times I felt kind of just, you know, Jesus, just giving me some scraps here. Without that, I would not have made it. I would not have had, I wouldn't be talking to you now. You know, we wouldn't be doing this. Those well, things that we gave me. And then, you know, I had to take those opportunities and make something out of it. You know, it's always so, yeah. a journey. Yeah. Yeah. So without all of that, I, you know, uh, and it's just kind of scraping and scratching and crawling <laughs> and, you know, getting that opportunity to to do those things. So, you know, you, you reach a position to where uh, along the way you can easily give up or you can just say, screw this, man, I'm going to just give it all I got and you know, and just keep hitting the wall until you break through. So, you know, it's, that's, that's what I did. Okay. So one last question. Yeah. Do we wrap this up? Um, what, what would you say to someone who is a young Enrique? Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a guy or it could be anybody. I right. Mean, but a person of color. Um, what would you say to them about the business these days? I would tell them that it is a very difficult business, that it is a business that is actually facing a lot of turmoil because of there's, uh, uh, you know, financially and all those things. It's trying to figure itself out. So you got to, you need to be flexible. You need to be aggressive. You need to um, try to learn all facets of it so that you can, if one thing doesn't work out, that you can make the other, find some other way to, to succeed. You talked about learning all the different elements of the business. I'd say if you have that opportunity to do that, please do, because that's how you're really going to be able to to uh, continue to succeed. And uh, whenever you get knocked down, get up, you know. Because if you don't get up and you don't try it again, then we're not going to have any representation. And, uh, you know, just just be aggressive and go for it and don't take any shit. All right. Yeah, really. Well, Enrique Cerna, thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Maddie Rotten. <laughs> We want to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter at Enrique Cerna and at Lofonland for me, Matt Chan. You can also email us at chinoichicano at gmail.com and check out our Chino Eat Chicano page on Facebook. Our theme music was composed and performed by Antonio Gomez. You can find the Chino Eat Chicano podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and other favorite podcast platforms. Please take a listen, download, subscribe, and give us a review. If you'd like to watch our conversations, we're posting them to YouTube. Go to search and type in Chino y Chicano. I'm Matt Chad, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. Stay safe out there. Wear your mask in a crowd. Please get vaccinated. We'll talk more later. Yeah.